Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 79, Dr. John Piper on Why Not Everyone is Elect. I'm kind of excited. I made a purchase on eBay recently, and I have it with me here now. You have to imagine, it's kind of like one of those sci-fi robots from 1950s or 60s movies. It's kind of shaped like a man with square features, and it talks. Here, let me turn it on. I am the LogicBot 2000. Please state your argument. I guess back when they made this thing, the number 2000 sounded really futuristic. And when it talks, its eyes flash, and it has two kind of tubular metal arms. I'm not really sure what those arms are for. I think they're merely decorative. What this robot does is it evaluates arguments. It tells you if the conclusion really follows from the premises or not. It tells you whether the argument is valid or invalid. LogicBot, can you explain what it is for an argument to be valid? Valid means that if every premise is true, then the conclusion must also be true. Okay, and then can you define invalid for us? Invalid means not valid. I see. Okay, so it's not really a separate definition. I thought today's episode would be a good time to try him out and see how he works. So as we go along, I'll fire him up at a couple of occasions, and we'll feed him the arguments and see if they're valid or invalid. Dr. John Piper is a well-known American Calvinist Baptist preacher. He's the author of many books, including Spectacular Sins, God's Passion for His Glory, Don't Waste Your Life, and most famously, Desiring God, Meditations of a Christian Hedonist, which was published in 1986. I recently heard an episode of his Ask Pastor John podcast, and I wanted to interact a little bit with the question and answer there. The question sent in was this, quote, If the triune God was perfectly joyful and glorious in union and fellowship with himself before the creation of the world, why, knowing that some of his creation would reject him and suffer eternal punishment, why would he create the world for his own glory? Why was his glory in creating the world worth the eternal damnation of the non-elect? End quote. I think a little bit of context is necessary here if you're not very familiar with Reformed or Calvinistic theology. What's in the background is the Augustinian or Calvinist view that who is saved and who is damned is determined by God in eternity, in timeless eternity, before ever creating anything. Some are saved and some are damned because only some are chosen in timeless eternity by God to be saved. Some would say that God predestines some to heaven and others to hell. The majority would probably say that God just chooses some and passes over others. Of course, the effect is the same. Who's going to heaven and who's going to hell has already been settled before the world began. And it's not like God is doing this in response to his foreknowledge. Rather, he foreknows who is going to be saved and who is going to be damned because he's already settled the matter. He's picked some and passed over others for reasons perhaps known only to himself, although they would say that his general reason is that it's all for his own glory. Another way that you can put it is that salvation is 100% God's doing. 
it's not anything that you ever have any choice about. It's not anything that you could affect one way or the other. Of course, we can come up with more and more subtle distinctions about what it is to have a choice about something. But in the sense in which most people think of having a choice, that given all the circumstances, there's more than one way things can turn out, in that sense, you don't have a choice. So to paraphrase the question, it is, if God is perfectly good, what could possibly motivate him to not pick everybody? The traditional answer is, very roughly, that the full expression of his attributes requires that there are objects of wrath. But the question is, yeah, but how could that be right? How could it be right to create knowing that some of your creation is going to suffer endlessly long? Here's a crude analogy. Imagine that you have some dog that people breed like, I don't know, purebreed German Shepherd, and someone offers their dog to be bred with yours, and they say, but there's one catch. What will happen if we let our dogs breed is there will be five puppies. Four of those puppies will be good dogs. They will love their owners and serve their families well. But the fifth puppy is going to suffer an indescribable agony for just as long as those other ones lead good doggy lives. Knowing that was going to be the outcome, would you breed your dog? You might think that the moral thing to do would be just to not start this process going. Remember that you can't harm anyone at all by not bringing them into existence in the first place. And if someone said, well, that fifth puppy deserves to suffer indescribable agonies for the course of a normal dog life, say, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, well, that's kind of hard to imagine how that could be so, given that it was destined to suffer even before it existed and before it had done anything. It was never at any time able to get off that train. So back to the question about God. Dr. Piper correctly recognizes that this is a really difficult question for his theology. Rather than directly answer it, he's going to first talk about some other things that he wants to talk about. When the Trinity's podcast returns, we'll hear what these other things are. That's about as heavy as they get. Um, Let me make sure that we lay the foundations for the question and the answer. She's laid them. She's assuming them rightly, I think. But not everybody listening might see those foundations. So first, 
God knows everything that will come to pass in the future. This is what's called in the philosophy of religion literature exhaustive foreknowledge. It's knowledge of everything that is going to happen, including the future free actions of agents like you and me. This idea presupposes, of course, that there is, right now, or from the perspective of eternity, a fully settled, a fully determinate future there to be known. In other words, there is a complete set of facts about what is going to be. This is controversial, although it's a majority view in the history of Christianity. Those Christians who are called open theists deny this. They think that in some respects the future remains unsettled. And so not even someone that knows everything knows the future as fully settled, because again, there are respects in which it can still turn out either way. But like many, Dr. Piper takes the view that the scriptures teach exhaustive divine foreknowledge. Not only does God have a general plan, not only does he know how things are going to end up, but he knows every single last detail of everything that will occur. So not only is God omniscient, that's something on which all Christians agree, even, yes, open theists, but also the contents of God's knowledge are static, they're unchanging. Since all the facts are settled in advance, the contents of his complete knowledge never change. Here are the texts he appeals to. Both Isaiah and Jesus and others say this, Isaiah 46, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done. In other words, in Isaiah's mind, the godness of God includes foreknowledge of everything that comes to pass. Okay, it's time to fire up the logic bot again. Here, let me turn him on. I am the logic bot, 2000. Please state your argument. Let me feed him the argument now. God knows how history begins. God knows how history ends. Therefore, God has exhaustive foreknowledge of every last occurrence in the course of history. Your argument is invalid. Ah, well, okay. Good to know. I see his point. His point is that a person would be consistent in affirming both of the premises and yet denying the conclusion. Well, then the premises don't imply the conclusion. And then also in reading Isaiah, Dr. Piper seemed to make this argument. Are you ready, LogicBot? Please state your argument. God foreknows some future events. Therefore, God foreknows all future events. Your argument is invalid. Okay, 0 for 2. So, Isaiah doesn't say that God has exhaustive foreknowledge in the sense that we explained, and that God has that kind of foreknowledge doesn't follow from anything that Isaiah says. At least, not the parts that Dr. Piper has quoted for us. But he has more texts. Jesus says the same thing about himself. He says, when he's predicting the betrayal by Judas, he says, I am telling you this now, before it takes place. This is John thirteen nineteen. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. Now, most translations say that I am he, but it's just that I am, and the 
echo is I am who I am, Jesus claiming to be divine here, and the evidences of his divinity is that he knows the future acts of responsible human agents like Judas. Hmm. Well, as we saw back in episodes 61, 62, 63, and 66, there are some strong reasons to translate as many versions do, I am he. But there are some arguments going past really quickly here. Let's slow down and feed them through the logic bot and see what happens. Logic bot, please evaluate this argument. Jesus foreknows someone's future free action. Therefore, Jesus is divine. Your argument is invalid. Right, yeah, that doesn't follow. If God knows future free actions, then he could just tell a prophet, and then the prophet too would foreknow those free actions. But that wouldn't make the prophet God. That wouldn't make the prophet divine. So, for instance, if God tells Moses that Pharaoh is going to freely decide not to let the Hebrews go, and now, based on God's testimony, Moses knows that Pharaoh is going to, in the future, freely sin in that way. Yeah, but it wouldn't follow that Moses was God. Now, whenever you have an invalid argument, you can always turn it into a valid argument by adding one or more extra premises. Logic bot. Jesus foreknows a future free action. Anyone who foreknows a future free action is divine. Therefore, Jesus is divine. Your argument is valid. Ah, good. Finally, a valid argument. But this is not an argument that should persuade us because, as we've already seen, the second premise is false. The entire argument, then, is what logicians call unsound. It's valid, but has a false premise. No one should be persuaded by an unsound argument, even if it's a valid one. When the Trinity's podcast continues, Dr. Piper lays some further foundations for answering the question that we started with. Again, then, Dr. John Piper, as he continues his long preamble to answering the question. There's a particular word here that he wants to emphasize, and I've added a little clue or two to help you notice which word that is. So that's the first foundation that needs to be laid. Yes, God foreknows everything that comes to pass, and he foreknew everything before he created everything, what would come to pass, and that's why the question is so relevant. Second foundation, God knew that sin would enter the world, and he planned for redemption before there was a world. And we can see that in passages that talk about grace being planned for sinners before there was even a world where there was sin that needed grace. Ephesians 1, 4, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, 
He predestined us to the praise of the glory of his grace. So we were chosen before the foundation of the world to experience grace, which is God's response to guilty people. Same thing in 2 Timothy 1.9. God saved us and called us to a holy calling because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us before the ages began. So grace is planned before there was any sin, so God knows there's going to be sin that needs grace. And Revelation 13.8, all of them will worship the beast whose names are not written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. So there's a book before the foundation of the world in which names are being written, and the name of the book is the life of the Lamb who was slain. So God planned before the foundation of the world that there would be a Lamb who was slain for sinners. Therefore, yes, God knew the whole thing that was coming down. So God knows it all, and he means to do it all, do redemption, do history, according to Ephesians 1.6, in pursuit of the display of the glory of his grace. That's the goal of creation and redemption, the, the communication of the glory, of the grace of God for the everlasting enjoyment of his people. So his glory and our joy are the united purpose of God in creation. Okay, so he cited some passages which Calvinists interpret as having to do with God picking out for salvation all individual people who eventually will achieve salvation. And he said that God's purpose in creating is for the happiness of those elect, those who are chosen, and for the display of God's own glory. But of course, this is all preamble. This is all just warming up. We haven't actually answered the question that we started with. And now the question that was asked is why would God move forward with this plan in view of the millions of people who will not be saved but suffer eternal conscious torment? And Leah is right to ask it this way because hell is real and terrible. And Jesus taught that it was real and the apostles taught that it was real. A little glimpse would be Revelation 14, 11, where John writes of the uh, the devil and his angels and those who do not believe will be in hell, the, the lake of fire. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. So it is torment, and it is endless, and it is day and night. So God knew that that would happen Okay, so we're still waiting for the answer, which is finally going to come up in just a minute, but what's going on here so far? I think part of what's going on, honestly, is a bit of misdirection. If you're wanting to know why it is that God would pass over these people before they had ever done anything and thereby damn them to eternal conscious suffering, what he's saying is, yeah, but look how good God has been to us. He's been so gracious to us Christians. Well, sure, but that's just changing the subject to something that's a lot more pleasant to think about. So he wants to say that God's purpose is for the happiness of the elect, Christians who end up with eternal life, and also the display of the glory of his grace. Look how gracious it is. You could just imagine the inhabitants of hell saying, that's easy for you to say. But displaying the glory of your grace doesn't obviously require that anybody be punished. You might think, well, 
it would most display God's grace if everyone were saved. Now, John Piper would answer, and I agree with this completely, that you just can't get universalism out of the New Testament. You can't get the New Testament to say that everyone eventually is saved. It looks like God's negative and positive judgments are permanent in the Bible. But there is a big disagreement among non-universalists about the nature of hell. When you say eternal conscious torment for millions of people, it's actually really hard to keep in front of your imagination what that would involve. You might wonder whether or not in a finite lifetime you can build up enough blame to where you deserve infinitely long conscious suffering. Okay, but maybe you can. You might think that if God had a right to inflict that, that still he wouldn't have to exercise fully that right. That once he had punished people and so demonstrated his wrath and his justice, then, given that he's not going to reconcile those people to himself, they become useless to him. And so eventually God just puts them out of existence. He annihilates them. This is called annihilationism or conditional immortality. If you're curious about how a biblical case can be made for this, and how the case for eternal conscious suffering is weaker than often thought, you can check out the website rethinkinghell.com and the podcast there, or you can go to YouTube and search for Edward Fudge. In any case, eternal conscious torment, that view of hell, is and has long been the majority view about hell in mainstream Christianity. But, as church history has shown, you can't always tell what is true by taking a vote. The New Testament arguably is ambiguous. There are some passages which are often read as implying eternal conscious torment. But on the other hand, Jesus tells us not to fear human beings who might kill us, but rather, instead, we should fear God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Going back to my dog breeding example, you can see how the case with God and damnation is worse than that. The outcome is not just one of five, but it's possibly a majority of the human race. Not only is it a majority, but it's millions, possibly billions of people. And they're damned to utter hopelessness, utter despair. And why? Well, the answer is, in Calvinistic theology, that they deserve it. As I said, that's hard to see how that could be, given that they never had any option of not turning out that way. But in any case, we finally got down to the answer that Dr. Piper is going to give to the question. When we come back, the answer we've been waiting for.
text that I think comes closest to answering Leah's question is Romans 9, 22 to 23, and it goes like this. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And here's the key explanatory purpose clause. He does that. He endures vessels of wrath in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. So if I understand this passage, Paul is saying, and this is, this is the key sentence, God endured for a season the unbelief and rebellion of those who reject him so that his wrath and power would be justly displayed in their punishment so that those who do believe will see the glory of his grace more fully in relation to the justice of his wrath. Why would God move forward with this plan to communicate his grace at such a cost? The only thing I know to say is we must trust God's infinite wisdom in this. He has done all things well. The judge of all the earth will do right Okay, so the reasoning here seems like it's fairly easy to understand. It's something like this. Hang on a second, let me turn the logic bot back on. I am the logic bot 2000. Please state your argument. God never does any action which is intrinsically wrong. God unilaterally caused someone to suffer eternally who at no time and to no degree is able to do other than she actually does. Therefore, it's not the case that it's intrinsically wrong to unilaterally cause someone to suffer eternally who at no time and to no degree is able to do other than she actually does. Is that a valid argument, LogicBot? Your argument is valid. So far, so good. But now, it's clear that one can't accept all three of those statements that I just said, but one might turn it around and argue like this. God never does any action which is intrinsically wrong. It is intrinsically wrong to unilaterally cause someone to suffer eternally, who at no time and to no degree is able to do other than she actually does. Therefore, it's not the case that God unilaterally caused someone to suffer eternally, who at no time and to no degree is able to do other than she actually does. Logic bot? Your argument is valid. Okay, so we've got two valid arguments here, and we can't accept both of them. That would be inconsistent. So, LogicBot, what should we do? The LogicBot 2000 cannot answer that question. Right, so this isn't a matter of logic. This is a matter of reasons or evidence. And so the way to decide between these two arguments is to ask this, which do we have more reason to believe? Do we have more reason to believe that it's intrinsically wrong to unilaterally cause someone to suffer eternally, who at no time and to no degree is able to do other than she actually does? Or do we have more reason to believe that God unilaterally caused someone to suffer eternally, who at no time and to no degree is able to do other than she actually does? But what is the evidence for each of these? The evidence for that second one is a Calvinist or Augustinian reading of the scriptures, especially Romans chapter 9, like Dr. Piper explained. 
The reason for the other premise, that it's intrinsically wrong to damn somebody forever when they were never able to avoid anything that they've done, that premise you might just think is self-evident. Like, it just seems obviously true when you think about it. So the evidence for that would be just our moral intuitions, or you could say it's something that we know by reason alone. So which reason is stronger? You might think that both reasons are pretty darn strong. If you in general have a low opinion about moral intuitions, then that might take down the one about its being intrinsically wrong. But on the other hand, if you find an interpretation of Romans chapter 9 and other passages that don't imply that God is damning people in eternity, not based on anything that they will do or might do, then this would reduce your confidence in the other premise. And so you would probably accept as a whole the second argument and not the first. So granting the inspiration, even the infallibility or inerrancy of the Bible, is there another way that you might read Romans 9? Well, there sure is. And one thing that maybe you noticed when Dr. Piper was reading those two verses was the phrase, endured with much patience. Now, why would God have to put up with or patiently endure something that he had eternally chosen for his own reasons? You have to endure something that you didn't do that was put there against your will, and now you're allowing it to stay that way. You don't endure your own unconditional plan for the world. That doesn't make any sense. And when you look at the whole chapter, you'll see it's not at all obvious that it has to do with the eternal salvation of individuals. Oh, it's about God choosing and passing over people, all right. But what's at issue is the status of God's chosen people, Israel, in the New Testament era. Now, he does give examples regarding the fate of individuals, that is, what happens to individuals. There's the example of Esau and Jacob, that God has passed over one and picked the other for a certain purpose. But it's not implied there that the one who's passed over is eternally damned. It's just that God is free to pick people for special purposes. At no time did he promise that life would be fair, that everyone would get the same circumstances or enjoy the same blessings. Now, when you come to the example of Pharaoh, and Paul here quotes from Exodus 9.16, many translations of this verse here in the book of Romans, God says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That, at least if you come to the text with Augustinian concerns, makes it sound like God, in eternity, decided that he was going to use the Pharaoh as a vessel of wrath. And that's the reason God created him, so that he could punish him. Well, be careful now. For one thing, some of the texts say that the Pharaoh hardened his own heart. It also says that God hardened it, but maybe those two are compatible. More to the point, though, if you go and look at Exodus chapter 9, you'll see that the immediate context there has to do with the seventh plague that God is raining upon the Egyptians. And in Exodus 9.16, for instance, in the New Jerusalem Bible, God says to Pharaoh, But I have let you survive for this very reason. Other translations will say raised up, or for this reason I spared you. Raised up, that is, from the sickbed. In other words, God is saying, I've kept you alive now for this purpose, so that I can show my power and what I'm going to do to you. 
Well, that's quite a bit different than creating somebody to go to hell. For all that's said here, it could be that God was open-minded about the fate of this Pharaoh, but that through the Pharaoh's sins, God finally decided that, okay, buddy, you're out of chances. My grace is used up now, and now you're only fit for punishing. That's consistent with everything that's said here. So going back to Paul now, even in the case of Pharaoh, it's not clear that the issue is God choosing or passing him over for salvation. He is saying that God chose Pharaoh to display his wrath. Well, you can do that if you're God. It's not like he's being unfair or breaking any promise. Pharaoh had been pretty naughty. Again, when you look at the end of the chapter, you see that the point has to do with the Jews and the Gentiles. It's this collective question that's at issue in Paul's mind throughout the whole chapter, even though he's giving individual examples. Here are some helpful comments on Romans chapter 9 by theologian Jack Cottrell in his essay called The Nature of Divine Sovereignty. Quote, It is true that the passage teaches that God makes some unconditional choices. Quote, Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. End quote. Romans 9.18. The best understanding of this, however, is that God unconditionally chooses individuals and nations for temporal roles in his plan of redemption. That is, he chooses whom he pleases for service, not salvation. The main point of this section is Paul's defense of God's right to reject the Jews as his chosen people. This issue has been raised by the material in Romans 1-8, through where Paul teaches that anyone who believes in Christ is a true Jew, Romans 2.25-29, and a true child of Abraham, Romans 4.9-16. But if this is so, then national Israel is no longer something special in God's plan. Would this not mean that God is somehow breaking faith with his chosen people? Paul's answer to this question is that a sovereign God can choose whomever he wants to serve him and to help him work out his purpose of making grace available through Jesus Christ. He can also sovereignly reject whomever he pleases. If he wants to choose Isaac over Ishmael for this purpose, that is his prerogative. This is the way it was with his initial choice of Israel. The same applies to his decision to set them aside. It is his right to do so. Besides, it is not as if he were rejecting them individually for salvation. He is simply setting them aside collectively, as a nation, as far as their service of preparation is concerned. But even if it is granted that Paul is talking about an unconditional choice for service, would this not indicate that God is a God whose decrees are unconditional with regard to everything? Certainly not, as Paul clearly shows in this very section. In fact, Paul affirms the conditionality of the main thing Calvinists want to view unconditionally, namely salvation. This is clear from his discussion of the eternal destiny of individual Jews. Any who are rejected as far as salvation is concerned are rejected because of personal unbelief. Romans 9.32 and 11.20 Likewise, any Jew can be saved by accepting Jesus as the Messiah. Romans 10.13-17 and 11.23-24 In fact, God is pictured as constantly pleading with Israel to come to him, but they remain disobedient and obstinate. Romans 10.21 in summary, Romans 9-11 through shows that God's election and rejection of the Jews as a nation with regard to their role of service was a matter of God's sovereign choice, 
while his acceptance or rejection of individual Jews with regard to their salvation is conditioned on their belief or unbelief. End quote. This is by no means a complete exposition of that chapter. That would take a lot longer than we have. But I'm telling you this to put a seed of doubt in your mind. A seed of doubt that Romans 9 really says what Calvinists say that it says. Of course, I think you should follow through and see if you can make sense of the whole thing in the context of the whole book. Also, it's important to notice that Piper's suggested explanation doesn't make a lot of sense. Let's listen closely again to his kind of interpretive paraphrase of Romans 9, 22 and 23. This is his interpretation encapsulated. And I want you to listen for the word fully, because that's bearing a lot of weight in the explanation. So if I understand this passage, Paul is saying, and this is, this is the key sentence, God endured for a season the unbelief and rebellion of those who reject him so that his wrath and power would be justly displayed in their punishment so that those who do believe will see the glory of his grace more fully in relation to the justice of his wrath. So if I understand Dr. Piper, what he's saying is that a full appreciation of God's mercy and grace on the part of believers A full appreciation requires that people be damned to a hell of infinitely long conscious suffering. That seems like a really weak motive. There are many ways that we could be made more grateful without that kind of cost. We could just be less forgetful. We could reminisce more. We could call to mind more often the depths of our own sins and how much we've been forgiven. I just don't think I need, I don't think anybody needs that to most fully appreciate the grace that's been given to me. Go back to my dog example. You might think that it enhances the lives of the four dogs to know that there's this other dog suffering. They might say, oh, I'm glad that's not me. Maybe they would even say, I deserve that, but whew. Thank goodness I'm not getting what I deserve. How much is that going to make their life better? Well, a teensy little bit. It might make it a little bit more enjoyable. It's hard to say whether it would enhance their life at all overall because it would be accompanied by a real horror at the fate of this other poor dog. So if you're enjoying eternal life and you're realizing that people are stuck in infinitely long suffering, um, this isn't being hidden from you. You're not being deceived about this in any way. I guess you'll say, I'm glad that's not me. And maybe you think they're getting what they deserve, but you're glad that you're not getting what you deserve. I mean, this just seems like massive overkill to bring about a slight enhancement like that. And again, it's not even clear if it is an enhancement. Right, why not just the counterfactual? Suppose that... The damned are extinguished at some point. They no longer exist. And then the blessed could say to themselves, there but for the grace of God go I. I'm glad that didn't happen to me. Just the counterfactual, if that's appreciated, will enhance God's glory. You could say it enhances the brightness of the light of his mercy. 
So this explanation is strange. It's not clear that it's convincing. And maybe most of the point, it simply isn't what Scripture says. At least, I don't think that's what it says. That if you want to know why so many people go to hell, it's just so that the contrast of this terrible fate makes the blessed outcome in the case of the elect all the more wonderful. It enhances God's fame for having done that. Yeah, slap me and call me a rationalist, but I just don't get it. Now, if you think the explanation's weak and you're doubtful that this is the correct interpretation of Romans 9, 22, and 23, the things that Dr. Piper goes on to add are not going to convince you. They're really not to the purpose of convincing somebody that this is a good explanation. Again, he's sweetening the conversation. He's saying positive things that aren't really relevant to the question at hand. If you're still waiting to be convinced, you'll say that he's begging the question here, that he's just assuming the thing that needs proving. I mean, he's basically saying that if the explanation doesn't look good now, well, it will someday. Do you trust him that much? So that, number one, no one will perish who does not justly deserve to perish. Two, in heaven there will not be the slightest suspicion that God has acted unjustly. And three, all who are saved know they deserve to be in hell. We know this and the fact that we are not in hell, and some are justly in hell, while we are in heaven, will not make us doubt God, but will make us amazed with thankfulness for this utterly undeserved grace. On this note of agreement, we can end. God's grace is undeserved. What we can argue about is whether anyone would deserve punishment for doing bad things in a universe where people are never, ever in control of the things that they do, because God from eternity has, for his own reasons, decreed everything that will occur. Thanks to Josh Woodward for this week's thinking music. It's a song called Under the Stairs. It's from his album called Breadcrumbs. You can find more of his music at joshwoodward.com. Do you enjoy listening to the Trinity's podcast? There are four ways you can show us some love in return. First, share the blog post for this episode on whatever social media you use, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, or Google+. Second, you can leave us a rating and a brief review in the iTunes store and at Stitcher. For step-by-step directions on how to do this, visit trinities.org blog review. Doing this will help other people who are interested in theology to find this podcast. Third, you can donate to the cause by clicking the orange donate buttons to the right of any blog post. Do you think these episodes are worth a quarter apiece? If so, you can donate a dollar each month via PayPal. And of course, any one-time gift is much appreciated. Fourth, you can send us some brief, to-the-point audio feedback for possible incorporation into a future episode. We would love to hear your question or your comment in your voice. The upload link for your audio file is on the blog post for any episode. To sum up, you can share, rate, donate, and talk back. Thanks for listening and for helping us to get the word out that God wants us to love Him, in part, by thinking hard about Him. 
for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.